Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. My name is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is my regular partner in crime, Dr. Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. This is, uh, by the way, take three for all you viewers and listeners out there. We, uh, we're having kind of a rough intro day. Yeah, so if this one goes off the <laughs> rails, we are uh, uh, not in an unexpected territory here as we're struggling a bit. This is a, another entry into the Monday morning quarterback case discussion series that's become kind of a favorite around here on the podcast. For us, it's it's pretty cool because it's what we do every day anyways, and that's talk about cool cases. And so this is one that uh, Dr. Dixon had recently in one of our local Montgomery County community hospitals and wanted to bring to the table for discussion's sake because it really hammers home a learning point that we've struggled with the best way to teach. It's a It's a clinical conundrum that paramedics, emergency nurses, emergency physicians, intensivists run into constantly day in, day out when caring for critically ill patients. I don't want to give too much away. So I'll let you just sort of roll into the case as it was presented to you, and I'll provide comic relief, I guess. Thanks, Casey. So this was a really cool case, uh, one of the many that I had over the weekend. And it started off, one of our medics came in with his patient and said, uh, you know, patient looked a little bit unwell. But I'm talking to the medic, and he mentioned, yeah, she's a little bit nauseated, a little bit pukey. Um, she's recovering from the ketamine. And I thought, hmm, this is going to be interesting. And so he goes on to tell me uh, she had this acute onset of uh, palpitations and shortness of breath uh, several hours earlier, uh, got near syncopal. And uh, when uh, he arrived, she had a soft blood pressure. And he worked to try to get the blood pressure up and really felt like she wasn't perfusing very well. Uh, her pressures were fairly soft in the 90s. Maybe she had one when I reviewed the chart in the 80s. Um, but he thought not going the right way. Uh, so he, with her heart rate was in the 180s. So he, he elected to give her some sedation and cardiovert her in the field. So let's, let's hit on a few questions that I would have at this point. And... You mentioned one of my probable pet peeves, and I'm going to say it on live podcasts, and I am not a huge fan of the term soft pressure. Either you're hypotensive or you're not. Either your perfusion is poor or it's not. And I feel like what soft allows us to do is stand in the gray zone, which none of us like to do as emergency clinicians. But you mentioned the rate of 180, so I'm assuming the rate was... 180, so fast and narrow complex? Fast, narrow complex, irregular. So okay. I think he nailed it. It was AFib. And uh, in this case, I mean, this cast, this particular case and, and that we're talking about today, to me, this describes that conundrum is that soft zone, right? It's the, this one's in the gray zone of, gosh, what do you do? And it kind of, it, it's, it gives a lot of anxiety to all clinicians because you, you, you really, I, I think at the end of the day, we believe in electricity here. It works. There's a reason it, it, that people like to use it. It works. But that being said, I think all clinicians are trained to be a little bit afraid of it or like it's maybe the, the nuclear option. And we'd rather, you know, we just feel safer with, you know, some, some cardiozam or some rate control drug. And 
ultimately me too. And I, I kind of pushed myself there and I put the pads on her when I got out of the room. I put the pads on her, set up the safety net, and then the, really started working on the why of the hypotension, which I think is kind of was, is my question and was the medic's question, right? When you see AFib with RVR, normally in my clinical practice, and I think in yours as well, they're folks that are worried about where you're going to put up their dogs before we take them to the hospital. And they're not unwell looking. They're not, they, they're not particularly sick looking. This lady looked sick. And then when I talked to her, she had a background of some malignancy in the background that was newly diagnosed as well. So it really made me think, gosh, what's the inciting insult? You know, when I see AFib, I think, is it, is it a toxin? Is it withdrawal that, that, you know, preceded the AFib? Like what is the, what's the precipitator of the dysrhythmia? Why is this worse? Is it sepsis, which would be the, I think the most common or is it a PE, something of that sort? So we're always taught stable or unstable when it comes to any tachycardia, narrow complex or wide complex. And if we move over into the wide complex world and the patient truly is tachycardic, and we've talked on the podcast before about the slower wide complex, really wide complex tachycardias that Dr. Matu talks about, beware of sodium channel yeah, blockade and hyperkalemia, yeah. but we're in the narrow complex world today. And so we're, we're always taught stable versus unstable. And if we're in the stable realm, then we're in a pharmacology discussion. If we're in the unstable realm, we move over into the electrical discussion. The part that's left out, and we've hit on this a lot in the podcast. I don't think you can hit on it too much because it is absolutely one of the more difficult clinical decisions. And that is even before stable or unstable, or at least in conjunction, and that's cardiac or non-cardiac. Is this a true electrical problem, period, end of sentence, or do we have an underlying medical condition that's manifesting itself in our eyes as a narrow complex, irregular tachycardia? And you hit on some of those. I'll run down that list and fill in some of the common players, but PE, sepsis, COPD exacerbations in the case of uh, MAT, dehydration, hemorrhage, thyroid storm, toxins. You could keep going on and on and on, whereas the heart is just sick and you see the manifestation in the rhythm and in the EKG. So it's very easy, especially when you're in a paragmatic situation and you're on a truck and you don't have basic metabolic panel and D-dimer and CT scan and lactic acid and blood cultures and all the imaging that we have in the emergency department, your objective information is limited. So you have a 12 lead EKG that shows a rate of 175. I don't blame anyone for saying, well, that's, that's the cause of your symptoms, but maybe that's the result of your underlying illness. And so when you take stable versus unstable and you add cardiac versus non-cardiac to the mix that plays a big role in deciding are we looking at pharmacology and maybe the pharmacology is mancomycin and zosin maybe the pharmacology is nebs and steroids maybe the pharmacology is blood resuscitation or fluid resuscitation or in the case of a thyroid storm maybe you're looking at methimazole and steroids uh, so 
it isn't always just pharmacology rate blocker because for a lot of those conditions for sepsis and dehydration and DKA and COPD and uh, pulmonary embolus, uh, an AV nodal blocker, a calcium channel blocker, a beta blocker may not just be useless. Could be a little problematic. And, and the way I describe it to the residents is sometimes don't be too quick at those things because then we're chasing our tail, aren't we? Because if they are septic, if they do have a PE, they have some other you know, potentially hemodynamically compromising underlying condition, then we're giving a rate control. We're given, uh, you know, uh, uh, something that's going to lower their pressure, and then we're going to be chasing it, right? We're going to be chasing it with fluid. We may potentially even be chasing it with a, a vasopressor. So with this one, especially with the cancer, I was really, I was kind of worried about giving some rate control I didn't really want to cardiovert her again. She was looking a little bit better uh, after the fluid. And so ultimately, I gave her just a touch of cardiazem. I gave her about five milligrams of cardiazem, enough to slow her down. And she slowed down to about the one, one teens to 130s. And luckily for me, her, her pressure came up enough to, that I felt good enough that she was stable enough to go to the scanner and, and get a CT scan. And, and from this, the soft pressure side, my reluctance to use that term really is, is semantics and probably me being a bit of a stick in the mud. But what I would encourage learners to do is to make sure that you remember that your assessment of perfusion is much more than just a systolic number or a mean arterial pressure number. Yes, that's what you're going to use to base your protocol decisions from. But there's also the clinical subjective side of what you saw with your patient when you described it to me when we discussed this offline was her color was better. She was mentating much, much better. So to me, if you see your black and white objective number improve and you see mental status, perfusion, diaphoresis resolves, clamminess improves, all those things that are part of is, is the patient perfusing or are they not? Those are those are big pieces of the puzzle. And you saw those improve, correct? Uh, correct. And, and the medic that took care of this patient, that's what really prompted him to go with the cardioversion rather than another strategy is he didn't think she was perfusing well. He got one hypotensive pressure. The next was normotensive, but she looked unwell. She was nauseated. Her, her skin color wasn't good. Uh, and he felt she was getting a little agitated, maybe a little hypoperfused. So that kind of prompted him to make the decision to go ahead and cardiovert, which I think was probably a pretty good decision because it stayed, that was early on in the course. She still had a fairly, you know, 10, 15, 20 minute transport where she could have, had he left her in that condition, she could have deteriorated. So I think it was probably a good call. Just for the listeners out there, we have uh, multiple sedation options within our protocol guidelines for our medics to use. This medic chose ketamine and synchronized cardioversion, 100 joules, I'm assuming? or Correct. So when the patient arrived to the ED, back in narrow complex uh, rhythm, but perfusing a little better and responded to some nodal blockade. Why does, why does nodal blockade work to improve perfusion with atrial fibrillation, just taking a step back into the basics? The chambers have to fill. 
and if you have this synchrony such that the chambers cannot fill, then your ejection fraction is really irrelevant because you're not full enough to eject 40%, 50%, 60%, whatever it may be, if the pump is not filled. So by slowing your atrial rate, you increase your filling time and allow improved perfusion. Yeah. And the atrial kick is the other piece that can be lost, probably contributes somewhere 10 to 15% of your EF. So those pieces are all remedied, improved with some rate control. Five milligrams of dotizum, not a lot, but if you go from a rate of 185 to a rate of 105, it takes not rocket science to figure out that you're going to have some improved filling time there. And indeed, she did improve. And when I looked at the medics, he had a, a you know a treasure trove of 12 leads and and strips for me to look at. When he initially cardioverted, she went to she reverted back to sinus, and then kind of slowly. Uh, back into AFib, and then her rate just kept getting a little bit worse and a little bit worse during her transport. But initially, her pressures had come up, and then by the time I saw her in ED, she was back up into the 170s, 180s, with pressures in the mid-90s to low-90s. So not looking as good uh, as she had during the transport. So it wasn't going. it wasn't getting better. Whatever was causing it was going back the other way and causing her to get a little bit worse. So let's move into whatever was causing it. So you now were faced with the question of, okay, we're more towards the stable side. Mentation's improving, slowed the rate some. Now cardiac, non-cardiac, let's think about the history. Let's think about the risk factors. Let's think about what my next diagnostic imaging lab work pieces are going to be and you started going down the list, I would assume. That's what I would have done. What did you rule in? What did you rule out? How did that progress? Yeah, so I kind of I kind of jumped there a minute ago and said, well, I got her stable enough to send to the scanner. That was not my original thought. It was in my differential, but I think the common being the most common, she was a lady who had just been diagnosed with a malignancy. I was thinking the most common would be sepsis. So I, I did a sepsis bundle. And before I went to rate controller, I put two liters on pressure bags and I ran those in uh, to see if I could buffer her pressure up a little bit to make myself feel a little bit better about giving her some rate control and potentially something that would uh, affect her hemodynamics. So now we're on the Monday morning quarterback stage of this and I know what happened. So I'm going to hot seat you a little bit here. If you could do that over diagnostically up front, would you have done anything differently? Would you have maybe involved the residents to do something a little bit differently? Um, where would you have gone with that? Uh, actually, this was my primary patient. I did go and get the resident, and then I brought the resident in the room and kind of presented the case de novo to them and said, "Okay, go. What? How would you go? How? What are we? Which way are we going here? Are we going electricity or are we going chemical uh, rate control?" Uh, and actually, the the resident uh, decided that, you know, the fluids were about in then, the patient's mentation was improving a little bit, and so uh, she chose rate control, which is exactly what I chose, which was it got her uh, a little bit better in the, the blood pressure range in the 130s. Some of her lab was coming back then. She did have an elevated lactate, but the 
sudden onset when I started talking to her, background of malignancy, she had a sudden onset of these palpitations and dyspnea associated, which wasn't particularly tachypnic, but then she had a feeling of near collapse, and it really made me think, gosh, I've got to send her over and, and look for a PE. And you found? A big saddle PE. So the rate was a result of the underlying illness, and this brings us to the discussion of fluids, rate control in the face of PE, because the diltiazem is not going to fix the PE. The fluids surely aren't going to fix the PE. Electricity not going to fix the PE. So what were your next steps as far as treating the PE? And then we'll come back to some of those, ooh, if I had known that in the rear view mirror top questions. Right. So Casey and I talked about this one. The one test I didn't send, uh, the scan was reported out as no right heart strain, uh, but I should have done a bedside ultrasound. I don't know that I'm that great at looking for the, the D sign, which is kind of shows more uh, – uh, strain on the right side of the heart to right atrium where it there's so much back pressure from the pulmonary from the in the uh, uh, the uh, right heart that it causes the septum to kind of bow over and they call it the D sign on ultra I don't know that I'm that grave an ultrasonographer to where I could tell like right heart strain on the ultrasound but what I didn't do that Casey normally does is I didn't send a beat and B Nancy P, a BNP, to look for a, chemi- a chemical sign of some right heart strain or heart strain. Now, the troponin is another surrogate marker for heart strain or strain on the heart, damage to the heart. Uh, I did send a troponin. That was normal. Uh, they called no heart strain on the uh, CT, but I did not send the BNP to help me make that decision. And what Casey's getting at is, you know, she was hemodynamically stable. Would she be a candidate for a thrombectomy, either a chemical thrombectomy uh, with thrombolytics, uh, you know, in situ catheter thrombolytics or, or some other therapy? And this is a rabbit hole that we could go down for hours as far as the management of massive PE uh, versus submassive. Even some of those terminologies are changing now. Bottom line is, is that we're more aggressive in the emergency department with treating pulmonary thrombus if the patient is more unstable. And so in this situation, the patient improved somewhat with rate control and fluids and was not an extremis. So anticoagulation ended up being the course of action. Uh, And some of the other markers, ultrasound, CT, lab work, are what guide us into catheter-directed thrombolysis, thrombectomy, systemic thrombolysis, and even amongst the various thoracic societies, European, American, chest, when you go into their recommendations, they vary amongst uh, the, the various expert opinions. So it gets very, very murky outside of my area of expertise. But the bottom line is, is she improved clinically, allowing her to be a systemic anticoagulation uh, patient, and sounds like did well uh, in her hospital course. It always brings us to that question of fluids in in PE, and we'll wrap up with that one because that's one that I get from medics very often. And I don't want to come across as dumbing this down because I am absolutely not. But in the EMS setting, 
very rarely, and I'm talking to 911 medics, do we know it's a PE. We have undifferentiated shock patients because we don't have culture results, urine results, x-ray results, CT results. So most shock, sepsis and obstructive, is going to be undifferentiated. We're not going to know until after the fact. And odds are, much more common being common, it's going to be sepsis. So we at MCHD feel like from an EMS setting, a 911 ground-based, we're responding to 911 calls, taking care of undifferentiated patients. If we have a patient who's in undifferentiated shock, we start with fluids, push dose pressors, and conversion to a vasopressor drip with levofed or norepinephrine being our preferred presser of choice unless you're bradycardic or anaphylactic. Agreed? Agreed. Agreed. And that's what we did with this lady is we put her on a heparin drip. Her clot got better on its own as we do. We clot and clot all the time or we would all be dead. Uh, and she improved enough and was set for, she never did convert spontaneously, but she had I left that little bit out. She had had previous AFib before, so she had a little bit of disease of her conduction system. She was set for a uh, elective cardioversion by cardiology once her, her symptoms of her PE stabilized a little bit. Usually they'll wait three, three weeks plus or minus, continuous anticoagulation, do an echocardiogram, look for ventricular thrombus, and then cardiovert if clear. What I want to leave the listeners with is that we do understand that in a known PE, we absolutely want to limit or remove fluid. So if you're in a helicopter EMS system or a critical care transport EMS situation and you're transporting a patient that has a saddle pulmonary embolus and they get hypotensive, 100% the opening play there is vasopressors. We don't want to go down the preload starling pathway because their RV is pumping against an obstruction and pouring more preload into an obstructed RV is bad for the right side of the heart. It decreases your perfusion, your contractility, and in turn will worsen your shock. But we don't know that 99.9% of the time in 911 EMS situations. Yeah, and actually, I didn't know this uh, beforehand. Mia culpa is Casey and I were talking about this case uh, pretty much the next day or whatever. Uh, we were talking about this case, and he was like, well, that may not be such a great thing. You know, my, my understanding uh, for many, many years has been all obstructive, particularly in uh, a tamponade physiology or something of the sort, to try to, to buff up the right side, the preload, to try to increase cardiac output and overcome some of those pressures. I don't think there's huge, huge data or whether it's patient-oriented data. We don't want to get too much into the weeds, but Casey was like, well, there's some expert opinion out there that says that in pulmonary embolus, maybe that's not, not true and, and that pressors are the, the play of choice. And that's where so that was kind of how this discussion started. And that's where expert opinion lies now is PE, obstructive shock, vasopressors first, pulmonary vasodilators, nitric oxide and other things like that. If you have those at your fingertips, we don't here in the trunk at MCHD. I don't in the typical uh, emergency department settings where I work and fluids really are limited, if not avoided. But remember that if you're in an undifferentiated situation, 
you have to go with what's the most common and most common undifferentiated shock is going to be sepsis. And we do want to at least open with some volume resuscitation. Now, the merits of a 30 cc per kilo crystalloid bolus and large volume crystalloids in septic shock, we can all agree that that is murkier than once thought and we may not need that much volume resuscitation, but we're talking about MCHD EMS with 20 minute transport times and an average volume administered to our septic patients in the 750 to 100 or 1000 cc range. This is not large volume three-hour crystalloid resuscitation times we're talking about here. So we still want our medics talking directly to them right now to open an undifferentiated shock with some fluids, push dose vasopressors, epinephrine as a bridge to the truck and convert to a norepinephrine drip. That's the, the general tack that we would like our medics to take. Now, if you're in some situation where you have a known PE, then pressors, yes, avoid fluids, Yes, but those are going to be uh, rare, really one-offs. Yeah, I think in this particular case, Casey, even knowing what I know now and haven't had this discussion, my my initial play would have been the fluids because I, I didn't really get to PE until I had kind of gone down the, the, the pathway and examined the patient and really couldn't find a source. There was no symptoms of a source, so subjectively I wasn't getting you know, sepsis-like symptoms from the patient. She hadn't been ill before. This was fairly sudden in onset. Uh, and I think the clincher was I had him shoot a portable chest, and it was negative. Clear. And that's where you go down the pathway of do you have unilateral calf swelling or calf pain? Do right. you have PE risk factors? Well, yeah, you've got it. Yeah, the recent mal- malignancy. And then that's where bedside echo is is just key. And if you see signs of... RV dilation, D sign, like you mentioned, there's several other ultrasonography related findings that can point you towards elevated right-sided pressures too much for this podcast. But if you see those check boxes, then you definitely probably want to turn the fluids off. If you had them on, turn off that 30 CC per kilo bundle bolus. If you had that on and really concentrate on getting that patient to CT angiography to, to rule out that PE. But like every situation, hindsight's twenty twenty, and if we had a rewind button, we would all be perfect clinicians. But this is a great one to consider moving forward. How are we going to approach narrow complex tachycardias? Well, first and foremost, we have to look at stable versus unstable, and at the same time, consider cardiac versus non-cardiac, and then direct our nodal blockade or our electricity or our underlying medical cause therapy appropriately. So great case. Anything you want to add before we wrap up? No, I I had a bunch of great cases. We'll have to do another one on the other cases I had over the weekend. There were several. Excellent. Monday morning morning quarterback fodder. uh, Keep it coming. It makes my job easier. As always, thank you for listening. Wherever you listen, please leave us a like or a review. We like five-star reviews. If you want to leave a four-star Give me a call. We can chat and maybe come up with ways we can get better and up that to a five-star review. If you have ideas for future casts or want to send us hate mail or any of the above, please email us podcast at mchd-tx.org. Thank you for everybody out there who's watching on YouTube. This is our inaugural, inaugural gosh, I can't speak today. Just go ahead You're and do take it. care of this for Dr. Patrick. This is the inaugural 
showing of our pod, our new podcast room. It's not 100%. We're going to get our logos put up, but we're super stoked to have it and grateful to the district for supporting the podcast and supporting medical education, not only for our medics, but for everyone out there that has to listen. We appreciate you more than we can say and, and the support from the district for this beautiful facility. We couldn't do this without admin. We couldn't do this without board support. I couldn't do this without your support. So thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for this awesome space. It's quiet. There's no windows for the rain to peck against. Hopefully the product on your end as the end listener will be enjoyable or the watcher as well. So as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for the support to uh, the hospital district. We will be back again with another episode soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.